Well, Gladstone Pods, my next guest, is becoming something of a, a fixture on the Little Wireless program. A self-styled incurable cartophile, Edward Brooke Hitching, seems to have dedicated his life to all things eccentric. He first uh, joined me a couple of years ago to chat about the strangest books ever written, which he'd catalogued in his own marvellous term, The Madman's Library. Last year, he took us on a journey to the various heavens and hells envisioned throughout history. And now he's back with another eccentric tome with a tantalising title, The Madman's Gallery, which he describes as an alternative guided tour of art history focusing on the forgotten and the freakish. Edward, welcome back and congratulations are once more in order. How was this book born? Thank you for having me. Um, it was born out of the same spirit as the Madman's Library. I, I've always loved curiosities, strange objects with um, strange stories to them as great ways to get into areas of history, especially if you want to attract people who think they're not that interested in a particular subject, like, for example, the history of art. Um, and to me, uh, art, my general awareness of it is that it's full of strange people, strange things, but it's often written about very, um, very seriously because to cover the entire history, you obviously have to focus on the most important paintings, the masterpieces, the great revolutionary works. And I wanted to read a book that went into the spaces between and the stories and people that fell down the cracks who aren't traditionally celebrated as making huge contributions but are um, fascinating nonetheless. I don't know whether dressing in a diving suit is falling down <laughs> the cracks, but uh, tell us about you and Salvador yeah. Dali. Well, that, that's that's a great example of, of what can give you an entire idea for a book, because I, my, one of my favorite stories has always been um, how the surrealists introduced um, surrealism to England when they first brought it over. And they had an exhibition in 1936 in London. And it was a party that was meant to be very strange. Andre Breton was um, there in dressed all in green, smoking from a green pipe. Uh, Dylan Thomas was walking around offering people cups of tea filled with boiled string. And Dali was to give the keynote speech. And when he appeared, he was dressed in a full antique diving suit, including the giant brass helmet with the sealed window. And he had two dogs on leads in one hand and a billiard cue in the other. And he started giving this wild lecture about surrealism. And it was only a, a young poet at the front called David Gascoigne who had the presence of mind to realize, oh, these gestures are actually, uh, there's something a bit more erratic about them. And Dali was suffocating inside the diving helmet. So Gascoigne leaps forward, grabs a billiard cue and Jimmy's opened the window of the helmet to uh, relieve him. Um, and and so <laughs> that's how surrealism arrived. So I thought, well, OK, that, I want to read a book full of those kinds of stories. And so um, that's where the book starts off. Well, let's whiz back uh, 38,000 years or 38,000 uh, before the common era. Tell us about yeah. the headless Venus. Yeah, well, th these are some of the most mysterious objects, not just in art, but in, in all of sort of um, relics, because we're obviously talking about a time before any sort of written language, proto writing, any before any kind of um, uh, complex language. Um, and we have these Venus figures scattered around Europe um, that all are of a similar form of uh, a headless woman, very generous, generously endowed physically 
and covered in strange um, scratch marks and carvings um, and discovered in, well, the example I've got in the book is from the Whole Fells Cave and it's dated to around 38,000 to 33,000 BC. There's a little hole at the top that suggests it was worn as a necklace and we think it's a depiction of some sort of fertility goddess. But at the same time, it still it still has this incredible power of mystery, um, as does a lot of that sort of prehistoric. I was era. very taken by the Nebra Sky Disc. Yes, the Nebra Sky Disc I'd I'd, um, I'd written about before in a book called the Sky Atlas, which is a history of the sky, and it's our earliest depiction, our earliest surviving depiction of the cosmos, and it's a beautiful sort of copper green disc with inlaid gold sort of uh, dots, markings, and crescent moons, and it was only recently discovered in the in the 21st century it was discovered by grave robbers who tried to sell it on the black market and luckily there a sting was organized by an enterprising professor of the state museum of prehistory in Halle. and what's so interesting about it is um, we've matched the dots that are so loosely decorated um, as representing the pleiades constellation which would have been the in the theater of that night sky and this was made circa 1600 BC. So it's it's just a classic example of how using an artwork you can get into an historical imagination and enjoy the cosmo vision of a um, of a people long since gone. We're now going to go R-rated with a nude version of the Mona Lisa. Yes, and and again, that was one of the signature um, stories of the book. Because once when I'd, I'd learned about the Mona Lisa, the nude Mona Lisa, the Mona Vanna, maybe about ten years ago, and it completely threw me because even saying the words Mona Lisa out loud almost feels like a cliche. It's been Dan Brown to death, you know, um, and you think you know everything about it. And then here is a story that um, is surprisingly little known, that a nude version of the Mona Lisa was created um, in the same studio at the, roughly the same time. It's credited to an apprentice of Da Vinci called Selai, who Da Vinci took in when he was about 10 years old, and who's meant to be an absolute terror, um, stealing from Da Vinci all the time. He grumbles about him being a, a beautiful curly-haired youth but just an obstinate liar um, and here we see it's the exact same Mona Lisa that we recognize the same smile the same background the same pose um, but her shawl has slipped to her elbows um, and I just really enjoyed talking to people who very well read people I knew and art critics I knew who had, didn't realize it existed so but again, you also suggest that there are well 20 other similar artworks <laughs> Yes, there are 20 other, roughly around 20 other um, nude versions. They, they sort of range, some of them are instantly recognisable and some of them um, you can see that they've sort of morphed in development. But I think also people aren't aware that there are other Mona Lisas in existence. There's one in the Prado, for example, which is painted at slightly a different angle as if it's been done by someone at the neighbouring easel. And the effect is if you put the two pictures together, it's like a stereoscopic 3D view. Yes, I've seen that one on the Prado. It's great. And isn't there a thought that the nutty Mona Lisas were based on an original by da Vinci himself? Exactly. There's a there's a pencil sketch drawing in the collection of the Louvre, which is um, shows the exact same image as the Mona Vanna. Um, and it was recently re reappraised and it was concluded that it was at least in part done by da Vinci's own hands. So the theory is, yes, that somewhere perhaps hanging in someone's um, bungalow somewhere in Italy um, is the original da Vinci. So we've got nude Mona Lisas, we've got headless Venuses. Let's now go to an image of St Christopher 
who we know was the... I think the, he was actually sacked, actually, by the Vatican a while back when there was a, a purge of saints, but he was the patron yeah. saint of travellers, except this one is, has the head of a dog. What the hell is yeah. that about? Oh, exactly. That's the exact reaction I want you to say every time you turn a page in the book. Um, yeah, it, it was based on an icon I saw years ago in an antique shop, an uh, Eastern Orthodox Christian icon. Um, and it sh it's the image I have in the book. It shows a, a Roman soldier with a lovely cloak, but he's got the head of a dog and long flowing hair. Um, and this was a tradition in painting these icons from at least the 16th century onwards up until the rule of um, Peter the Great, when he tried to sort of modernize and snap people out of superstitions a bit. Um, um, and the idea is, well, there are several theories. One, they think it might be based on a mistranslation of the word uh, for Canaanite. Someone maybe confused it with canine, but that seems a little too convenient for me. Um, and the other story that I loved is um, found in one of the hagiographies, the biographies of St. Christopher, um, which suggests that it, he was uh, originally a man named Reprobus, which means the scoundrel in the reign of the emperor Diocletian. So that's what the third century, I think. And he was taken prisoner by Roman soldiers who were battling tribes uh, to the west of Egypt. And he was press ganged, to forced into joining this elite platoon of the Roman army called the Numerus Marmaritarum, um, which was a platoon of werewolf-like soldiers. They each had heads of dogs and they were used for fighting in situations where no normal man could survive. And then he's transferred to Syrian Antioch and, and baptized by Bishop Peter of Italia as, as Christopher and martyred there in 308. Um. <laughs> you also suggest that there was accepted knowledge at the when around the 16th, 18th centuries, that there was a foreign race of dog-headed yeah. men in existence. Exactly. It's, it wasn't so hard to believe because, in a sense, that was the knowledge of the time. Um, and I did a book called The Phantom Atlas, which charts places and people that were drawn as fact on maps but never existed. And on those, some of those maps, you find the cynocephali or the dog-headed people um, who lived somewhere over there, somewhere at the edge of the world, um, maybe in India or in Africa, um, who sort of wore the skins of animals and barked like dogs. And one theory about the origin <laughs> of that is that it's based on rather confused sightings by possibly quite drunk sailors when they encountered uh, creatures like baboons. Okay, and of course we remember the grotesque creatures that were postulated to live in the Antipodes in my neighbourhood. Right, exactly. Um, and, and, and it always makes me think, what an exciting time to live in when you have all these theoretically possible mythical races living around the world, giants in South America in Patagonia. Um, it must have been terrifying in a sense, added terror when, uh, when being an explorer. Well, it's all very Hiroshima Bosch. Now, tell me about this Messerschmitt person. Okay, so... Yes, Franz Xavier Messerschmitt was a sculptor of incredible skill. You can see from the pictures in the book. He worked with the floors and the stone um, and turned cracks into wrinkles of, of, of faces. But his, from about 1770, his absolute passion for the next 13 years was working on a series of sculpted heads of himself, which are drawn, uh, created in extreme facial expressions, the whole range of the face, and um, from gurning and squeezing. And they have titles like um, 
the the strong odor um, and the uh, enraged and vengeful gypsy. You know, they they were given these bizarre titles, but the idea is that he started to suffer from mental illness um, and and physical illness. He had shooting pains in his limbs, and he was convinced that there was a link between pulling facial expressions and controlling the body. He thought the ancient Egyptians discovered this and that the spirits of proportion were punishing him for his artwork approaching perfection. And so he spent the rest of his life making these busts of himself, thinking that that was how he could control these devils that were tormenting with physical pain. Um, And and we all know what happens when the wind changes, whatever your expression, it's frozen. Now, you range way beyond Europe to other parts of the globe, and Japan has been home to more than a few very curious artistic traditions. Please share some. Well, I think one that I found really fascinating because it's an example of of art having an added purpose and it's the um the jackets of the hikeshi uh, firefighters the samurai firefighters as they were known um because i never truly appreciated and it's obvious when you think about it just how many enormous fires um, a city like tokyo of just wood and paper suffered um i think there's something like 49 great fires between 1601 and 1867 um and so firefighting was obviously an incredibly important job and initially it was about demolishing the surrounding buildings um but then the Keshi system was introduced, these incredibly brave men who wore these padded jackets, that plain jackets that were soaked in water before they walked into these infernos. But when they emerged triumphant, they turned the jackets inside out to reveal these magnificent painted artworks, these scenes of mythology, giant spiders, all, all of heroes fighting off monsters as a kind of celebration of putting the fire out. And I just, I just found that a sort of fascinating use of this artwork. You, then we're off to Central Africa, and I'm looking at uh, power figures that look a bit voodoo dollish. Yes, the Nkisi power figures, which were encountered, discovered by the Dutch when they first explored the Congo. And they are statues, figurines of, of men and sometimes of double-headed animals that are completely shredded with pieces of metal. It's like something out of a Clive Barker uh, horror film. And initially you have quite a sort of horrified reaction, but they're filled with, um, the way they're created is they're filled with pulses and medicines. And it's a sculptor working with a healer to create these uh, these magical, they're sort of spiritual capacitors. They're the center of communities. Whenever there's a dispute, whenever there's a celebration, whenever there's any kind of event um, in the community, uh, if anyone ever has a question to consult the divine, a piece of metal is inserted into the figure to activate its power. Um, and they som- sometimes have holes in the center of their chests where a pole would be run through so they could be lifted without touching them. Um, and so what they actually serve as is, is sort of documentary records of the history of a, of a village or a town. I'm talking to one of my all-time favorite guests in Edward Brook. Now, let's move to colour, and I'd like you to tell me about a purple that was found in the mucus secretion of a predatory (laughs) sea snail. Yes. um, Well, what you find with a lot of of paints and and dyes, uh, the original colours have really extensive 
histories and often found in the most gruesome of places. Um, Tyrian purple is, I think, the one you're referring to, which was first used by the um, Phoenicians as trading people. And that was in around 1570 BC when we know it was uh, first being used. And it's prized for its resistance to fading. It actually gets brighter in sunlight. Um, and actually, there's another uh, famous color. The royal blue was first extracted from a marine snail. So Lord knows what they were doing with these snails to stumble across this. Um, but I also love the the origin of the dye mauve. So that was invented in 1856 by a teenager who was working in his parents' um, attic trying to synthesize quinine from coal tar. And he noticed that as a byproduct, there was this magnificent color. And it was much preferable to the um, purple that was produced at the time, which they um, they extracted, they called it murexide, which is um, from the snail, but actually it was made from bird excrement. So we started with uh, Salvador Dali in his diving suit. Let's now go underwater with Tsar Pritchard. Yes, Zara Pritchard is, is an example of someone I just didn't come across in in the general art introductions that I read. And again, because, you know, he's not credited as having a particularly heavy influence. But the fact is, he was the first person to paint at the bottom of the sea, which I found astonishing. He was going to be a doctor. That was the agreement he made with his family. And then the night before his exams, he realized he didn't remember anything. So he fled to Australia to learn how to paint and came back as a jobbing artist and then put on a diving suit without any gloves, but weighted boots, a weighted canvas, um, waterproof paints, and dropped to the bottom of seas, um, some sort of 60 feet down sometimes, to paint in what he called his subaquatic studio, this foreign landscape, this alien landscape. And uh, the only sort of hazards were batting away fish that would come to nibble on the flakes of paint. Um, and the crews, the local crews in, say, Tahiti that he hired, who loved to uh, misinterpret his tugging to be brought up on his rope um, by uh, filling his suit full of more air until he floated away as a prank. So um, there's an example of his painting in the book that just shows this alien landscape. Another Australian connection focuses on the word eternity. And everyone listening, every Australian listening, will know about mm. this endlessly repeated on Sydney oh, right. footpaths. And once, as I recall, writ large in ginormous form on the um, on the Harbour Bridge. I'm glad you discovered yes. Arthur Stance. Yeah, yeah, I've I've always loved his story and I think sometimes it gets people curious about when people talk about Banksy over here um, and they talk about graffiti. I think most people think it almost begins in the 80s. Um, but the story of Arthur Stace, which I feel silly talking to you about, because I'm sure, yeah, as you mentioned, it's very well known. But but over here it isn't. Um, and I loved um, telling his story, especially the power of how he the origin story of, of, of hearing a, a sermon preaching of the rewards that are that awaited if if you could um, amend your behavior here on earth um, and feeling so inspired having this um, revelation that he began just writing in in chalk which is almost um, it gives it more poignancy this idea that it would all be washed away within a couple of weeks but he had to, he felt compelled to keep spreading his message for several decades I think in the end wasn't it I remember there was a brief fashion for elephants to paint and they sold quite well. And that recalls your story about a chimpanzee named Peter. 
Yes, um, I love hoaxes, um, especially art hoaxes, which are usually designed to lance the pomposity of, of modern art, especially when it's baffling. And so this is a story from around, I think, 1964. And there was a, a journalist who went to a, a, his local Swedish zoo and convinced a keeper to let one of their um, chimps, with payment of bananas, um, <laughs> daub some paint on canvases. And, you know, he painted the walls, he painted the floor, some of it got on the canvas and he collected a few that looked the most deliberate um took them to an exhibition and uh called the uh chimp peter uh, announced him as a french artist as pierre brasseau <laughs> and uh, peter won first prize and even made a sale and there were there were some sort of funny comments of reviewers at the time uh being completely won over as, as this new sort of uh, uh, groundbreaking artist and and his identity was real revealed almost immediately because it's too good not to rub it in people's faces now of course portraits weren't unusual during the renaissance but you include some of a young man being consumed by flames what interests you about yeah. this i think because I think one of the definitions of a great curiosity is something that exists almost outside of its time, sort of cocooned in strangeness. And it looks like something that could have been created 500 years ago or yesterday. And this tradition of uh, men in flames, which is from the around the Elizabethan period of around 1600, um, showing these romantic young men very sort of dashing their sort of shirts open at the neck and and they're surrounded by fire, but they're untouched. And there's the example I give in the book is surrounded by a Latin motto that says, um, he burns, he who is cold. And we don't know officially, there's no official record of why these were created. So it's a tasty mystery. But the obvious interpretation to take is perhaps it's unrequited love. And it's, it's, it was a way of um, trying to win over um, an intended with this depiction of, of just how an, how an utter agony you are with, without having your love returned. There's a, an alarming fact in your book that in 2018, Christie's in New York auctioned <laughs> a work of art created by AI and it sold for almost half a million dollars. Yes, um, there's a, a dealer's expression. My, my dad was a rare book dealer and he'd always used to say, it's not about having the best, it's about having the first. And this was the first artwork that was created by an artificial intelligence and sold at auction. And so that's what gives its amazing value. Um, and I include a few others in the book and I'm sure people have seen examples now online. And it's just weighing up whether trying to discern the value in something like this because it's really it's there's when we say artificial intelligence it's not quite what we mean yet intelligence denotes self-awareness and we're not at that level so it's about pattern recognition it's about feeding hundreds of thousands of images into um, an algorithm and for it to sort of spit out an amalgamation but things are going to get more developed and we're going to perhaps one day see the walls of art galleries in the high street and um, covered with artworks produced by algorithms and it's just interesting to think of what value they might hold Edward Brooke Hitching is the author of The Madman's Gallery, The Strangest Painting, Sculptures and Other Curiosities from the History of Art, published by Simon & Schuster. And you can find our other interviews with Edward on the ABC Listen app. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.